Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that panders to the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including the Australian launch of the Hyundai Ionic 5, an all-new Kluger, autonomous grocery deliveries in the US, and, and how people really behave with Tesla's autopilot. In a feature interview, Rob Fraser ruminates on two large SUVs, one that is twice as expensive as the other. In our road test, Alan Zervis fills in the details of the latest all-new Kluger, and in quirky news, Brian Smith looks at whether abandoned rail stations are the best places for seeking the paranormal. There is more information and longer interviews at drivenmedia.com.au, or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. We even list the contents and the times each item appears in the program, so you can go straight to the one you prefer. Our Facebook page is Overdrive City Driven Media. Time to start the program. Let's have the news. Hyundai's Ionic 5 electric vehicle is about to go on sale in Australia with its different style, fast charging, large power, pretty good range and a high price. There's a two-wheel drive version with one electric motor at the rear and driving the rear wheels with 160 kilowatts. It's priced at $71,900 plus on-roads. Then there's an all-wheel drive with two electric motors, a powerful one at the front, 155 kilowatts, and one at the rear, 70 kilowatts. The total torque figure is a massive 605 newton metres. It's priced at $75,900 plus on-road costs. Both come with a 72.6 kilowatt hour battery, bigger than the Hyundai Kona, but results in a slightly smaller range of 430 to 450 kilometres. To start with, it will only be sold online, firstly to the 120 who have put down a deposit, then offered to those who are still keen from the 11,000 who submitted an expression of interest, and finally to the general public. Toyota has launched an all-new Kluger large SUV in Australia. It's the fourth generation of this seven-seater. Toyota's two other models in this category, the best-selling Prado and the Fortuna, are known for their off-road capabilities, but the Kluger is clearly aimed at a comfortable vehicle for the family. The powertrain options are petrol-based, as Alan Zervis from GayCarboys.com notes. You've got a diesel in Prado and in Fortuna, they don't drive like this car, they drive like SUVs. So in this car, they've got around that lack of diesel, which was a criticism of previous generations, by giving it a hybrid, which I think is an even better option to a diesel, because diesels have become less popular. The hybrid powertrain is a four-cylinder, 2.5-litre petrol engine with an electric motor and a combined power output of 184 kilowatts. Its fuel consumption is just 5.6 litres per hundred. Klugers are priced from around $47,650 to $75,400 plus on-road costs. The Isuzu MUX is now second in the new car sales in the large SUV segment. It's a very credible vehicle, starting at around $48,000 plus on-road costs. 
Also in this category is the Land Rover Discovery, which starts at over twice the price. Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au helps put that in perspective. The technology in the Discovery will allow you to go places a little bit easier. And you might go places that you may not be able to go in in the MUX. Although, as I said, the MUX now has revised suspension settings and also the rear diff lock. So there's not a lot of places it won't go. And I think the thing, as much as I love the Discovery, it's a beautiful car to drive in. I came up the other day and as I was driving past the entrance to the beach, I just decided I'd turn right and head into the beach for a bit of a drive and didn't even think twice about it. And away we went. But you can buy a Isuzu MUX and a Caravan for the same price you pay for the Land Rover Discovery. So it really is horses for courses. What do you want? The Ford Motor Company, Argo AI and Walmart are working together to launch an autonomous vehicle delivery service in Miami, Austin, Texas and Washington, D.C. The service will enable Walmart customers to place orders of groceries and other popular items online for door-to-door autonomous delivery to their homes. The commercial service will be available to Walmart customers within defined areas of the three markets, but this will expand over time with initial integration testing slated to begin later this year. As consumer expectations continue to shift to day-to-day or same-day delivery, especially in the urban core where there is a higher concentration of deliveries, this is then another step in how autonomous technology can change customer experiences while also optimising freight logistics and operations. Argo and Ford are aggressively preparing for large-scale autonomous vehicle operations across a broad footprint of US cities. Based on real data, MIT has developed a model that looks at how drivers may become inattentive while using Tesla's autopilot system. They found, not surprisingly, that driving-related off-road glances, perhaps checking for peripheral hazards or checking your speed, etc., were less frequent, while non-driving-related glances were the most frequent and the longest. 22% of the glances exceeded two seconds. There is evidence that some driver aids can be helpful. Adaptive cruise control has reduced some tailgating. But if drivers are inattentive or have incorrect expectations about the system performance, the response to to safety-related situations deteriorates. MIT suggests one way to potentially improve drivers' engagement is with a driver attention management system that can provide feedback to the driver or adapt the way the system reacts in real time. Like our approach to many transport developments, Tesla's system is driven by what has been technically possible. We need to look at how people use systems rather than how we define how it should be used. And that has been the news. The VFAX sales figures for new cars in Australia categorised by the type of vehicle and their size, but also by their cost. Now, in the large SUVs, there are those in the category of below $70,000 and those in the category above. And I think the category, the cheaper category, outsells the dearer category by about two or three to one. But... Is it worth comparing between the two? Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au is here to talk about two from the different classes. G'day, Rob. David, how are you? 
I'm doing well. What vehicles have you been looking at recently? Well, I've, I've had two similar but very different vehicles in the last couple of weeks. One was an Isuzu MUX, the LSU model, which is the middle range. And one was a Land Rover Discovery SE, which with a, a whole lot of options attached to it. Two vehicles that are both four-wheel drives and ostensibly aimed at the same market, but very different in pricing. So the Land Rover Discovery, what sort of extra things does it have? Well, Land Rover has a, a very long shopping list that you can tick, and if you tick a lot, it becomes expensive. I mean, they've got 18-way electric heated front seats. Um, they've got captain's arms rests. You know, it's got a very particular vehicle I had is a Nabib Orange, I think you call it. Um, I'm just having a look outside now, and it's a very bright orange colour. It's the heads-up display. There's a rear diff lock. There's you know, three-zone climate air conditioning, a whole lot of things. Electric third-row seats. Now, things that make it much more comfortable and much more luxurious inside, but they do add to the price substantially. I mean, the one I'm driving has got about $20,000 worth of options on it. On top of what base price? It's about $107,000 plus usual costs. It's about $20,000 up, so about $127,000 plus all the, the add-on costs. Now, the other vehicle I was driving was the Isuzu MUX LSU, which is the middle-range one. And that one's about $60,000. The Isuzu Ute, that's the name of the company, which is selling this SUV, the MUX, it's now second best selling in that large SUV class behind the Toyota Prado. So it's making great gains in the market. Is it good or is it a car that you're accepting at a lower price with lower features? The answer to that is both. I mean, the, the new 2021 model is a substantial improvement on last year's model. There's a revised um, suspension tune-up. It's got a rear diff lock now, which is necessary for off-road driving if you really want to go bush. But it's still, I mean, you know, the $120,000 car is, is more luxurious inside. It, it has a more premium feel to it. So you do get what you pay for. But at the end of the day, both of those cars can go to the same place. What's it? The MUX worth? About 60000 plus the costs. Half the price. You're saying it can go to places. Is Are they both aimed at the rugged market? Well, I mean, the Land Rover's Discovery's routes were competitor to the Toyota Land Cruiser. Hmm. Now, it, it, it was aimed at those that wanted to go four-wheel driving, and it's morphed over the years into a much more luxurious around-town seven-seat type SUV still exceptionally capable, will still go all the places you want it to go. I'm just not so sure that people that spend $127,000 want to take it those places. That's the issue. Yes, you're more likely to to rough it in the Isuzu, given that roughing it may scratch the side a bit or that. I'm not suggesting that you're going to be light-hearted about it, but perhaps a little easier in taking the much cheaper model out into the bush. Oh, look, absolutely. And is the Discovery better? Well, yes, it has air suspension and it has, you know, a, a, a selectable drivetrain that you can choose for mud or ruts or sand or, you know, all those type of things. So there's a, there's a lot more technology in it. But at the end of the day, with a good four-wheel driver, both of those vehicles will end up at the same place. It would take a very extreme situation to try and differentiate between the two. Um, if it if that's at all possible, yes, yeah. Look, it is. I mean, the 
the technology and the discovery will allow you to go places a little bit easier. And you might go places that you may not be able to go in in the MUX. Although, as I said, the MUX now has revised suspension settings and also the rear diff lock. So there's not a lot of places it won't go. And I think the thing, as much as I love the Discovery, it's a beautiful car to drive in. I came up the other day and as I was driving past the entrance to the beach, I just decided I'd turn right and head into the beach for a bit of a drive and didn't even think twice about it. And away we went. But you can buy a Isuzu MUX and a Caravan for the same price you pay for the Land Rover Discovery. So it really is horses for courses. What do you want? In terms of driving on the highway and around the urban areas, is the MUX appreciably rougher? Perhaps it lacks a little bit of the ambience of the Land Rover, but how does it feel? It's probably in that range where you're comparing it to the Fortuna, the Everest, the um, Pajero Sport, um, the Sangyong Rexon. It's probably one of the best on-road riding vehicles there is in that price range. Is it as good as the Land Rover Discovery? No, it's not. But it's not a bad vehicle to drive at all. How would it compare with, say, the Kluger, which is aimed less at the four-wheel drive market and more at the family car? Uh, look, again, you're almost comparing two different vehicles. You know, the, the Kluger really is aimed as an on-road vehicle that has the advantage of all-wheel drive. In some of them, they sell a lot of two-wheel drive Klugers, so they sell it for the space and the you know, the practicality and the interior. It's almost cavernous, the inside of a Kluger. But to head to a four-wheel drive track in a Kluger, not a hope. So the Kluger does ride a little bit better on-road than the Isuzu does, but the Isuzu is a true dual-range four-wheel drive. Although they both look large wagons, both will seat seven people, they really are aimed at different segments of the market. Well, I wouldn't even do it then, to be honest. I had a very good friend of mine that bought a Range Rover that never went any further off-road than the grass on his front yard, and I asked him one day, I said, why did you buy one? He said, oh, if I get stuck parking, I can drive up on the curb. (laughs) Unfortunately, he was dead serious. (laughs) That's an extremely expensive option for something that many other cars will do. Absolutely, yes. All right, Rob, that's lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that's Rob Fraser, who writes for a number of sites, including anyauto.com.au and ozaroma.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Toyota has three models in the large SUV segment. They have just launched the latest edition of one of those, the Kluger. Is it better and is it different from Toyota's other two models in this class? To help me understand that, I have on the line Alan Zervis from GayCarboys.com. G'day, Alan. David, how are you? The outside of the Kluger, it's a different body. Is it a similar shape? It is a similar shape. Well, it's a different car altogether, new platform, new everything. Uh, Look, I think it reminds me a little bit of the previous generation of RAV4 rather than the new generation of RAV4. It, uh, it doesn't look to me like a new generation of Toyota, and I'm okay with that. They talk about a large trapezoidal grille in the front, and down the side of the front grille, those little pods, and the headlights are a little more squinty, I would say. Is it sharper than the previous models? Well, yes, but I, they, they look to me to be a little bit ubiquitous. It, I feel like I've seen them on other, especially Japanese brands before. Perhaps not that unique. 
There's a stronger emphasis over the wheel arches. Does this give it an image of off-roading, even if it doesn't have the reality? Yeah, I guess, uh, especially around the back. That looks quite, uh, well, I say powerful. Whenever they see a flared guard, they say, this is powerful. And it's got the plastic sacrifice panels uh, over both guards. And our particular car had sidesteps as well. So it definitely gave it that that rugged, manly, off-road weekend warrior look, even if the reality, as you say, is different. Well, certainly not with that third row of seats up. As you rightly pointed out in our video, the space was really not even hatchback size. So there's space inside for seven people, albeit some of them have to be short. But if you do that, there isn't luggage space for seven people. It's not the vehicle you can go a long touring trip with, seven people occupying all the seats and their luggage as well. If you fold down the back of the third row of seats, you end up with 550 litres. And if you fold down as well, the backs of the second row of seats, you end up with 1,150 litres. I wouldn't consider that particularly large. No, but look, in this particular kind of car, what we have to keep in mind is it's a horses for courses type thing. So this is going to be, I think, a family car with the occasional use of that third row. So it's the space for five people. I think that's important. And if that's the case, then it's perfect. What it is is a five-seater car with occasional seven seats for very short trips. If that's what you're saying, then there's plenty of space. It's certainly a family car more than a rugged off-roader, but I think that's the point Toyota is making. There are two powertrain configurations. There's a three-and-a-half-litre V6 petrol engine, or there's a two-and-a-half-litre four-cylinder petrol with an electric motor, in other words, a hybrid combination. And that hybrid gets a fuel economy that is staggeringly good. It's rated at 5.6 litres per 100 kilometres. In the centre of the dash, there's an 8-inch infotainment screen, and that's consistent across the three grades. But the difference is, in the base grade, between the dials in front of the driver, there is a 4.2-inch for the information about running the car. But in the middle and upper market models there is a 7-inch screen, so that's where the difference in technology is really showing strongly in the interior between the grades. Uh, there's a few other places as well. So the multifunction display, which is, I think, the screen you're alluding to, is different sizes in uh, depending on model. But also there's a few other things as well. The uh, air conditioning, for example, manual in the V6. As you know, this week I've got the V6 GX as well as the hybrid GX and there's a, as you pointed out a huge difference between them when you get inside little creature comforts missing in the V6 car the nice thing about the hybrid model although it's not related to the powertrain is that the hybrid has a three zone climate control the third being in the back that's right well the V6 petrol also has a couple of climate zones so you've got one for the front and one for the back, but they're both manual, which I think is just extraordinary. It's really like those old people movers, you know, from the 70s, and that you'd get into your Toyota, Toyota Tarago and you'd all have a little individual fan control. It's really a modern version of that. I found the hybrid just a little noisy 
it has almost a grinding sound. Now, that's a bit too harsh a word, but actually sitting in the back seemed even better than necessarily sitting in the front of the hybrid model. I think the real problem that I had with the hybrid is the two and a half litre engine didn't feel very, what's the word, refined. But in EV mode, it is absolutely sublime because it's completely silent. The eight-speed automatic in the non-hybrid version is much preferable to me. I'm not a great fan of CVT. Now, what are the prices? Well, the top one is 75000 so that's a whole lot of biggies. The bottom one is in the sort of mid-40s. That's still an awful lot of car. Our car is just a little over 50. So I think the important thing is that it's value for money. So you're getting a seven-seater car. It's up against things like Kia's Sorento and, and so forth. But this feels a little bit more solid. And the cabin, I think, has come a long way. Toyota interiors used to be very, uh, what's the word? I want to be kind, David, but I'm going to say subpar. It's a little bland. But then again, it's not on its own when it comes to a certain blandness when we're referring to SUV vehicles. Well, the inside certainly matched the outside. (laughs) Alan, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Alan Service from GayCarBoys.com giving us his unique view on the style and the appearance and the function of the latest Toyota Kluger. You're listening to Overdrive. Released late in 2020, Hyundai's i30 sedan with the N-Line Premium Editions shows off a stylish and sporty design. Inside the front leather seats offer a brilliant blend of both comfort and sports support. They have red stitching highlights, both heating and ventilation, and the driver's seat is electronically adjustable 10 ways. There's a large 10 and a quarter inch center screen, and the infotainment system is easy and intuitive to use along with the premium Bose audio system. Other features include a convenient charging tray, smartphone connectivity, sunroof, and more. The rear seats are relatively roomy, and the boot has generous capacity for multiple suitcases, but also has a narrow opening that limits the size of what you can put in there. The N-Line Premium brings a 1.6-litre turbocharged petrol engine with locally tuned multi-link independent rear suspension. Buyers can choose between a 6-speed manual and 7-speed sports auto dual-clutch transmission. The N-Line is packed with safety features and comes with a 5-star ANCAP safety rating and is priced from around $37,600 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Ghost hunters, particularly in old railway stations. Is that a particular issue to do with transport? Who better to ask than our good friend Brian Smith. Good day, Brian. Hi, David. Here we have the story. Now, this is in the location in Buffalo, New York, where a person apparently fell to 15 to 20 feet down a in an old building because they're on paranormal investigations, illegally, as it turns out. Now, that building was the Buffalo Central Terminal, which, of course, used to be a railway station, but no longer that. Brian is wandering around an old terminal. Is that uh, the thing where you would expect to find a spirit, a mischievous spirit that's wandering eternity? I can think of no more likely haunted place than an old sort of railway station or transit hub. David, I remember um, the little-known sort of uh, tunnel from the end of the Kale Expressway where the trams used to run through. 
in, into Wynyard and then, then from there under the, um, uh, Hyde Park, the, the old rail platforms under there, and they were very spooky places, David. So, so yes, I, I would expect to find um, uh, sort of ghosts in an old terminal. But it, it seems this person, the ghost hunter, wandering about in the dark in this um, this beautiful old uh, uh, transit Buffalo Centre terminal, um, I think they would have been better off if they'd found a ghost. You know, maybe a station attendant uh, or a guard who could have. <laughs> Warned them <laughs> to mind to mind the gap. <laughs> His spirit was wandering around there all the time. Although perhaps it's a spirit who had been abused and and had suffered greatly in their life on Earth. For example, the four fifty five was ten minutes late or cancelled <laughs> altogether. An angry beautico. It sort of adds new meaning, of course, to the word terminal, doesn't it? Oh yes, indeed. I'm almost disappointed that the person um, didn't sort of. Uh, indicates that they'd felt a push, you know, or something like that. It could have been much more newsworthy, I suppose, if they'd, they'd felt that a ghost had thrown them off the platform or through the roof yeah. rather than just uh, stumbling. Well, someone said that it proves ghosts exist, an interesting concept of the word proof, but nonetheless. I wonder then whether that's the ultimate... Dante's Inferno, level eight and a half or something, where you <laughs> wander eternity waiting for a train when all the services have been cancelled. That's right. Wait, waiting for a train that never comes. And you have to drink the coffee from the railway cafe. This is hell. <laughs> this is the, the purgatory you go through before you go to hell, not purgatory, but as Dante would re- recommend. You can't understand the platform announcement. <laughs> yes, you could have got out if you could have understood. <laughs> yeah, oh, you've lost your ticket. You pay the price of eternal damnation. Oh, that's right. Now, wandering around as a lost spirit because you never saved your ticket in the right pocket. <laughs> or, you know, you, you, you go up and speak to one of the ghosts and they say you should be on platform two. <laughs> And there's no stairs, right? (laughs) Out of order. Ah, yes. Well, I I think that that would be. There are dungeon. There, there, there are a spooky, malevolent sort of place at the best of times. Although the more modern ones, I think, are better. But hey, I grew up catching the train to school when they were that they were like you know all the tiles on the wall like sort of lavatories, you know. Public <laughs> toilets, so they they weren't what you would call um, enticing in any way. But- no, and I, I guess David, the only other place that would be worse than a abandoned ghosts and paranormal activity probably be an abandoned post office. David, it's already hell when you go in there when it's yes when it's open and, and operating. Imagine how bad it would be when it's haunted. Yes, you wait in the queue for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> You've always got the wrong stamp, or the, you get you you go you're going there to get a passport. <laughs> <laughs> no, that photograph. You move the the queue moves, but it doesn't get shorter. But then finally, it does. And you get to the counter, and it's the wrong counter. Yeah, that that's got to be the pain and suffering you deserve because you lived a life like I don't know a lawyer or a politician or something. <laughs> Thanks, David.
My pleasure to talk to you, Brian, and I appreciate your time. And that's Brian Smith, transport expert and a man who can reflect on the broader aspects and the quirkier aspects of life. This is Overdrive across Australia. This week we are driving the Kia's fourth generation Sorento Platinum, which is by far the best model yet, and the previous ones were excellent. It's designed for a large family. The new modern and elegant design hides a very comfortable interior. It's like a lounge room on wheels for the family. The front seats are extremely comfortable with heaters, electric adjustments, as well as a heated steering wheel. The middle seats are spacious and are certainly comfortable for transporting the family. The third row seats are okay for shorter distances for shorter passengers. And as a five-seat SUV, there is excellent luggage room. The Platinum is packed with standard features both for comfort and safety. And some highlights are an in-dash turn camera, which is excellent, interior LED mood lighting and a large user-friendly infotainment screen. The 3.5-litre petrol engine is responsive enough, but a little heavy on fuel, so my pick would be the diesel engine with a better economy. It's hard to describe just how comfortable the Sorento is and how easy it is to live with every day. Kia's 3.5-litre Platinum Sorento is priced from just over $64,000 drive away. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Zervis, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, longer interviews and some pictures, go to the website drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or for some short, sharp snippets, go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.